You're listening to a sermon from Mission Ridge Church. Hang around after the message to learn more about Mission Ridge. Sermon notes for this message, or any of our other messages, can be found on our mobile app. Just search for Mission Ridge Church in Google Play or the App Store. Thanks for tuning in. Um, well, we are in week two of this series, Coronation of a King, and try to make Jesus a king by the end of this thing. See what we can do. Uh, we're, uh, Rob gave you a, kind of an overview last week of the whole book uh, and kind of some of the driving factors and stuff behind that. Uh, this week, we're going to look at um, kind of a broad question that the whole gospel covers. Um, that is, who is Jesus? If Mark's going to spend, however many words he uses in the whole thing. I should have got a word count. That would have been nerdy and cool. Um, But if he's going to use that whole gospel to describe who Jesus is, that's, that's his whole point for writing this thing is he's answering this question of who is Jesus. Uh, Maybe we should start from asking that question as we enter into reading through that gospel. Uh, Conveniently, he, he's terrible at poker. Um, John Mark is horrible at poker. He gives away all of his cards at the very beginning. The very first verse, uh, Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. So he answers it in the first verse, and this is the shortest sermon ever. (laughs) You thought you were going to be late for the meeting. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, so John starts with this phrase. He starts, and this is the only time actually that he says, he gives his thought as to who Jesus is. The only time right there, first verse, and it's done. The rest of the book, which Mark is the shortest gospel, is very concise, uh, but it's still, a, I mean, he spends a lot of time writing this. I mean, that's a fair, it, it's a big essay if you're looking at it like that. I probably would have at least given myself two nights before the due date to write that thing. Um, it would have pushed me a little bit. Um, but anyway, so the, for the rest of the book, Mark just over and over and over, he just blasts you with these two different things. He shows you what Jesus does and says, and then he shows you how different people react to him. Over and over and over and over again. This is the rest of his, the rest of his gospel is just, what Jesus is doing and saying and how people are reacting pretty much. Now, Mark doesn't like to mince words. His gospel is very much like a comic book. You know, uh, I think this was where Rob made fun of Tolkien last week that, you know, he doesn't like to spend a lot of time saying things. And while I do appreciate some Tolkien, uh, both the extended editions of the movies, because the, you know, a three-hour movie is not enough. It needs to be four. But uh, I also like the books where he just gets, you know, he's, he gives a lot of description and all of this extra color. Mark is not like that. Mark is much more like a comic book. It's frame by frame, and he's jumping from here. Bam, this happens. Now this happens. Now, now this thing over here happens. Now this happens. One after another. And there's no explanations. There's no commentary, really. A lot of times, it feels kind of disjunct when you're reading, and then Jesus just says a thing, and then pff, you're on to the next thing. And you're, you're sitting there thinking, well, what did that mean? 
Now, keep in mind that all of this is presented through the lens that Rob mentioned last week of the the four pillars of Greco-Roman society. We had the pillar of education, we had healthcare, we had entertainment, we had sports. Those four things kind of dominated their culture. These were the important parts that they loved. And John uses his gospel in a way that touches on, I'm pointing at the wrong screen. I'm going to chastise my own self later uh, on the video. Anyway, uh, he's, he's going to use his gospel in a way that presents these four pillars and Jesus as kind of a, he's fitting into this. He's coming in and he's completing these four pillars. He's showing up everybody within these four pillars. We keep seeing these illusions in his gospel to these things. So if you keep these in your mind as you're reading through it, you'll, you'll start to notice that, oh, the pillar of education, we see Jesus as a teacher a lot. Or healthcare, we see Jesus healing a lot of people. Or entertainment, we see Jesus showing up, this one's a little trickier, as a spectacle. And then sports, we see Jesus as maybe a competitor? Question mark, hang on for four weeks from now. Because we're going we're gonna to break down these four pillars over the next four weeks and look at each aspect of this through the gospel. <clears throat> but don't forget this context as we're answering that question, who is Jesus? Trying to prepare for this and come up with a good example of, of Mark showing this, uh, what Jesus does and what he says I started going through and I'm, I'm picking through and I'm looking for what does Jesus, you know, what's he, a good example of Jesus saying something. Well, surprise, surprise. There's a lot of those. Uh, Jesus spends a lot of time talking in the gospel and, and Jesus does a lot of things. And then there's a lot of different people's reactions that I came across. So I, I, I just to break it down in my brain, I started to highlight these sections in two different colors and whew, sweet Christmas is there a ton of them. So Anisha, if we can throw up that, that picture of the highlighted, yeah, there we go. Highlighted text. Yeah. So that's the first, uh, let's hear a really small print. I think, uh, I think this made it into chapter. Oh yeah. Chapter five starts right there. So this is about the first four, almost first beginning of five chapters of, of Mark and yellow is Jesus doing or saying pink. I think that's pink. Uh, Jen's nodding. Yes. Okay colors. Got it. I was going to go maybe a fuchsia. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, so the, the pink or whatever color that is, is people reacting and it just goes back and forth and it kind of blew my mind because I, I knew it was in there, but when you start to actually highlight these things, it's just, it's over and over and over again. There's, it'd be easier to highlight the stuff that isn't in that pattern. It's the little white bits here and there. So here's a simple example that picks up right after we left off last week, right towards the top of that. Mark 1, we'll start at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. 
When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and his brother, John in a boat preparing their nets without delay. He called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him <clears throat> of note. John or uh, Mark says he quotes Jesus. The first time that Jesus calls them, he said, he gives the quote, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. The second time he's just like, and he called them. I suspect it was probably the same thing. This is a good example of Mark just being super abbreviated. No extra words. Every word that he puts in there probably is super important. So Jesus, in this passage, we see Jesus say something. And then we see how Simon and Andrew react. We see what Jesus does. And then we see how people react. And then we see Jesus say something again. And we see how James and John react. And both of these examples, the people react favorably. You guys catching on to how this works at this point? Jesus says or does, people react. And that's all Mark is going to do. He's not giving any commentary on this. He's just showing us these examples. And we see a, you know, a bunch of people healing, uh, getting healed by Jesus. And then we see how people react to that. We see a bunch of people getting demons cast out and then a bunch of people react to that. We see a bunch of Jesus teaching and then people reacting to that. And it's worth noting that not all the reactions are like the disciples had there. We get a lot of varied reactions. Some of the people have tons of faith and follow. Sure. Uh, or they come in and lower a friend through a building roof because they have that much faith. And they're like, that's how they react to what Jesus is doing. They're like, yeah, get this guy in there. We're going to break through the roof. Other people are confused and perplexed. And they, you find them asking, you know, where did this guy get the authority? Who gave him shoes? Like, why, how, is he, how is he allowed to teach like he's teaching? And they're confused by him. They don't really know what to do with him. Some people react like that. And then some people are afraid and they ask him to leave because, you know, he just, destroyed their entire pig population. That's a fun story. Demons into pigs, 2000 pigs. <laughs> I'd never noticed that many pigs. I was like, I always imagined like five or six, 2000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs that ran into the sea. <laughs> oh, and then the people react and they're like, will you please leave? You're scaring us. And then, uh, and then you got the reaction of some people end up hating him and they start plotting to kill him because of what he says. That's a thing too. <clears throat> but once again, Mark's just presenting this for us to observe, for us to draw our own conclusions as to what we should make of this Jesus guy and who he is. Pick up with another story here. Mark 1. 40 through 45, <clears throat> a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, him being Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So Jesus does something and says something. And then instead, 
the guy went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Jesus does, says something, man that just got healed reacts. Probably not in the right way, but he's very excited because he doesn't have leprosy anymore. It's probably a big deal. Can't keep it quiet though. Maybe, but this, this brings up a question that maybe we should consider because as we're, as we're going through and we're seeing this pattern, this other one emerges. Why does Jesus not tell him to say anything? Or why does Jesus tell him not to say anything? Get that in the right order. Because Jesus does this over and over. He'll heal, he'll do something miraculous and he'll be like, shh, shh, don't say anything. Stop it. People usually don't listen. Somehow there's always still a crowd that gets attracted. Why is Jesus telling him this? It it reveals there's a, a little bit of a subtle tension in the gospel of Mark that we see. There's a little tension in, in, in the ministry of Jesus. It's almost like Jesus is trying to get people to realize who he is, specifically the disciples. He's trying to get them to realize who he is, but they, and he wants him to realize that he's the Messiah. Remember John gave it away right at the beginning. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. So he's trying to get him to realize this, but he also, he doesn't really want to let the cat out of the bag completely. It seems like. And that, that's a little bit of a tension because that seems odd, right? If you're, if you're looking at this with fresh eyes, you, why? Well, you, you're kind of a big deal. You should be kind of telling everybody that you're here, you've arrived, like, let's get this thing going. Let's zoom ahead to Mark 8. <clears throat> so that pattern just keeps on going, keeps on going. And, and then we get to Mark 8, and this is kind of a turning point in the book. And this is where the disciples realize they get it. It's confirmed. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Who do people, not you guys, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and to the rumors that are circulating prophets. Good options, maybe? This is what people are saying. These are the rumors that are circulating about and saying, that's who this guy is. That's who Jesus is. And then Jesus follows up and he says, but what about you? He asked, what do you say? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, knocks it out of the park. He says, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. They get it and shh, don't say anything. You're in on the joke now. Don't say anything. You got the secret. But pause. It's easy for us if you've heard this story a couple times and you know how the story ends and, and it's easy to just kind of gloss over this. There's a glaring question that we should be bugged by. It's an all bold on the next slide. Why keep it quiet? You have the Messiah. And we don't, I don't think in, in our 21st century American context, Gentile, non-Jewish, I don't think we really understand. Uh, the Messiah, like this should be exciting. This should be a big deal. You should be rallying people up. The Messiah is here to destroy their oppressors. 
Rome, those jerks that are raping and murdering and pillaging and stealing and taxing them worse than Bernie Sanders ever could. Like Rome's horrible. And they're living under this and they desperately want their Messiah to come liberate them. In their minds, they probably have an idea of what that looks like. If, if we were to put ourselves in their shoes, I imagine we would be picturing something like Superman or Captain America. Now, fun fact, Superman is actually, was, I believe, written by a couple of Jewish guys, and he's very much a messianic figure in his formation. So that's kind of fun and odd, and you can go fall down that rabbit hole if you wanted to. But... We would, we would imagine this great conquering because they're living under a society where power looks like Rome. It looks like military might. It looks like whoever has the most money, whoever has the most status, whoever has the biggest sword, they're in charge. They make the calls and they're expecting the Messiah to come in. And you're probably going to expect him to come in like Thor with a giant hammer and smash, Right? That's not what Jesus does. Immediately after Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. So Jesus, they figure out, they they say, you're the Messiah. And Jesus follows it up with this teaching. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Jesus, they're like, you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, let me tell you what that looks like. And as he's telling them, plainly, apparently, just laying it out, he gets done and Peter kind of takes him off to the side. He's like, "Um, I don't know if you got the memo, but that's not what you're supposed to do, Jesus. That's not what the Messiah looks like. Messiah is supposed to come in with heat vision and freezing breath and be able to like turn the world backwards or something like that. He's supposed to be some giant conqueror, Samson, like probably looking back, they're probably looking back at their superheroes, probably supposed to come in like Samson, but like not a jerk, uh, strong, like Samson and, uh, whatever Gideon's good stuff, you know, like David, he's supposed to come in like David with the mighty men right. And conquer Rome, destroy them, decimate them, kick them out, drive them out fleeing before you. And now Israel has their kingdom back and they have their reigning king and everything is right in the world as they've pictured it. So Peter brings him aside and says, Psst, this is what, this isn't right. You're not supposed to, that's not how it's supposed to go. And Jesus reacts pretty strongly. Um, you know, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You know, I I think even in our modern English translation, get behind me, Satan, comes across as fairly strong. I haven't usually called people Satan, but maybe a couple of times, usually jokingly referring to this. Rarely would that one get pulled. And and it's clear, like he's got human concerns. Peter has this, this idea, and I'm sure he's not the only one 
I'm pretty sure all the other disciples are sitting there thinking, thank goodness I didn't speak up. Like, we'll just push Peter out. Like, guinea pig. They've got this idea. They have this preconceived notion of what Jesus should do, what Jesus should look like, what the Messiah should be. Messiah is supposed to look like this. This is who Jesus is supposed to be because they figured out, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, but now they get, they're trying to define who he is instead of learning who he is. God's kingdom is supposed to look like this. We're supposed to be like this in Israel. I can't really blame him because I don't think I'd do anything different. Jesus knows that he must deconstruct the disciples' preconceived notions about the order of things. He's got to deconstruct this with them. He's got to break this down. And he has this conversation with them a couple more times. It's again in in Mark 9, uh, specifically verse 30 and 32. He describes this and and it says they don't understand. And then again in Mark 10, 32 through 34, he spells this out again. And and then immediately after, it doesn't say they don't understand, but immediately after a couple of the disciples start asking questions about who's going to be the most powerful and sitting beside his, you know, right hand ruling throne. So it, it kind of implies that, yep, nope, still don't get it. They don't get that Jesus came to be a different kind of Messiah than what they'd pictured. The suffering servant. And Jesus knows he has to deconstruct this. He's got he's to work with them. And he lays all this groundwork and then they're going to get it later. Spoiler alert. They'll figure it out. I also think that this is probably why Mark mentions that when Jesus is speaking in parables, he only explains it to the disciples. And he, he's, he says, I'm speaking in parables so that uh, if people don't get it, they're just going to be in the dark and they're going to be confused and perplexed. And we look at that, we're like, well, that's not very helpful. What a crappy teacher Jesus was, right? That's our American judging. Like, fix the education system, Jesus. Come on now. Give us a study guide. We want a multiple choice test. He doesn't do that. He only explains it to the disciples. I think the reason for that is that he's willing to deconstruct with those that he has close relationship with. That was an odd little thing that I stumbled across in this. Jesus is willing to get into the mess with this and start pulling apart the disciples' preconceived notions of Messiah because he has close relationship, because he can monitor that and keep it from going off the rails. Now, as far as deconstruction and whatever implications you want to pull from that, have at it. But I thought that was kind of interesting. Back on main track though, do you remember the questions that Rob gave us last week to wrestle with during the series? We had these two questions. Why, uh, why did Jesus live? What was the purpose? Right? Because if you remember the creeds, they, they just jump from like his death to or his birth to his death, right? Miraculous birth, and now he died. Sacrifice Jesus, sins forgiven, good, cool. 
So why, why did he live? Why did he spend 33 years on the earth? Why did he have a ministry that lasted three years running around with these disciples and stuff? Why did he live? And then what was the gospel message of Jesus? What was, what was going on there? I think that knowing Jesus had to clarify the disciples image of what Messiah was. I think that begins to answer that question of why did Jesus live? So if you're taking notes on those questions and you're like, all right, keep that in my brain as we go through the next couple of weeks, I think that starts to lay the groundwork for that because he needed to modify their ideas of what this was going to look like. He needed to change their outlook on things. I got a couple implications here. as we're answering who Jesus is. And Mark is introducing you to Jesus via primary source. He's getting this, he's writing down Peter's recollection of this, all of Peter's stories. And he's telling you all of these different accounts of people who had direct interaction with Jesus. He's giving you what Jesus said from the people who heard it. And then he's telling you how the people reacted from the people that witnessed those reactions. And his goal is for you to meet and to know the person of Jesus. That's important. It's to meet and actually know him. Not just methodically or, you know, up in the brain. It's not just a, it's not just that. He wants you to know him. So you can read the gospel of Mark all you want, but if you're going to not, if you're not going to actually let it serve its purpose, of developing that relationship with the Messiah, with Jesus. And you're kind of just wasting your time, my opinion. Like you have to actually let it do its thing. Cause you can, you can sit there and you could read it to find cool facts. You can read it as an educational, some sort of scholarly endeavor, right? I, I've been listening to a roundtable discussion with a bunch of hobnobs talking about the books, book of Exodus lately. Um, some of them are coming at it just from an academic standpoint. And it's really interesting to see how they just kind of miss it. And they think it's really cool, but it's really dry. And then there's other people at the table that are devout believers. And and when they talk about it, like this is something else for them. The text comes alive for them in different ways. I think Mark's the same way. If you're not going to let it actually get in and affect you, develop that relationship with Jesus. I don't think it's doing much good. You can highlight stuff and find cool patterns. You got to meet Jesus through it. Second implication is this. I think we can pull out of this. The gospels are the authoritative source for you to know who Jesus is. I think this is important because we're kind of in the same position as the disciples in some ways. Nothing else, no one else gets to redefine who Jesus the Messiah is. These are primary sources. If you want to go back and dig into the context and and understand how those gospels came to be and how reliable those are, do it. They are. Test it. 
but they're the authoritative source. They're the primary source, the closest thing you can get to Jesus on paper. I, and, and we do something funny in our society. There's a, there's a book by, oh, what's his name? Neil Gaiman or something like that uh, called American Gods. The premise in this book is that uh, all, all the gods are real and they're, they're only made real whether people believe in them. So if somebody starts believing in Odin, then Odin becomes real in America or something. Uh, it's a fun little fantasy book. But at one point, the characters end up at uh, Easter, Ishtar. They end up at her house and she's got a bunch of different versions of Jesus that are hanging out because Easter and Jesus are kind of a thing as we're coming close to that. So all of these different versions of Jesus, you've got hippie Jesus and you've got conservative white Jesus and you've got Hispanic Jesus, black Jesus, Asian Jesus, uh, rocket launcher Jesus probably was there uh, that Rob mentioned a couple weeks ago. Uh, all of these different flavors, it was like Baskin Robbins of Jesus. And yeah, it's a silly book, but that moment was, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading that, I'm, or it's a TV show, can't recommend the TV show, uh, severe content warning, but that scene is wildly intriguing to me because it kind of points out something that we do in our society. We've got a lot of different ideas of what Jesus is, and if you go ask people, you're going to get a lot of different variations. You're going to hear this like, like when he asked the disciples, some are going to say he's a prophet or a teacher or this or that, or he was a good guru. You're going to get all these different answers. And, and I, what we like to do in our society is we like to take a little bit of this, like, oh, this is my flavor of Jesus that I like. And he, it doesn't really convict me too much. Or I care about these things. And so I'm going to make Jesus this. That ain't right. What we're doing there is we're allowing others, we're allowing something else to redefine who Jesus is. We're allowing our cultural context to define who the Messiah is, which is exactly what Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for Peter doing. That might be a little convicting. So we shouldn't allow others to define who Jesus is. The primary source, the authoritative source needs to be the gospels and everything else. And I would say, even within the Bible, Paul comes after the gospels, everything Paul writes when we're like, this is, and, and we can, and that's good. I'm not saying don't read Paul. Paul writes good stuff, but everything that we read from Paul has to go back through and filter through the gospels in my mind because they're the primary source. And if it doesn't line up with the gospels, then I'm probably reading what he's saying wrong. I think that's important. Mark writes his gospel to this answer this question of who is Jesus. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't resolve it at the end either. This whole book ends with like, it's kind of a, it's a cliffhanger ending in some ways. And yeah, if you go into your, there's, there's like this extra bit that they tack on later, hundreds of years later, where they're like, this feels really unresolved. And so they added to the scriptures and there's a footnote in your Bible about that. 
but it just kind of drops off. And what that does is it leaves us with this, like, okay, you've seen all of these reactions. You've heard what Jesus said. You saw people react. What are you going to do with it? He gives tons of primary examples and accounts, very, very succinct over and over. It's a machine gun. Boom, 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 this, this, this. All of that is to give you everything you need to answer this question for yourself of who is Jesus going to be to you? Who is Jesus going to be to you in your life for you? Who is he going to be? And I would challenge us not to let him just be some sort of version of Jesus that is comfortable, but to be Jesus, the Messiah, who's going to challenge and deconstruct our notions of the way God's kingdom should work. I think we should wrestle with that. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Mission Ridge Church. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. We are a church focused on relational discipleship and located in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you come join us for worship. Service times, location, and loads of other fun stuff can be found on our mobile app or our website. You can find our mobile app by searching for Mission Ridge Church in your app store. Our website can be found at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church. We'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for tuning in.